welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. This week, I'm bringing you a special episode. National Salmon Day is Friday, October 8th, and while this day was created to celebrate cooking up the super tasty fish, I view it as the perfect opportunity to talk about Alaska's world-famous salmon runs, the fat grizzly bears that gorge upon the fish, and the looming threat that, if approved, would collapse this spectacular phenomenon. Today, I'm speaking with Drew Hamilton, professional bear guide and wildlife photographer, Drew has led bear tours in the Alaskan wilderness for two decades. Trust me, if experiencing an on-foot bear expedition is on your bucket list, you want to go with this man. Few people understand grizzlies and other potentially dangerous wildlife's behavior better than Drew. And so when the proposed pebble mine at the headwaters of Bristol Bay was fast-tracked, Drew jumped into action and became a leading voice against the project. Bristol Bay hosts one of the largest salmon runs left on the planet, and destroying these salmon stocks would cause complete ecological and economic collapse. Drew sat down with me while moving across North America to Churchill, Canada, to lead polar bear expeditions off of the coast of Hudson Bay. I successfully connected with him at a hotel in the Yukon that had just enough Wi-Fi to stream our conversation. We chat all about bears, salmon, how the pebble mine came to be, and the latest updates from the front lines. While listening to this episode, I recommend checking out Fat Bear Week on Instagram and other social platforms for a hilarious visual of the bears Drew and I chat about. It's truly a sight to behold. Lastly, all of the resources Drew mentions will be available in the show notes at rewildology.com. If you'd like to support the show, share this episode on your social platforms or maybe with a friend or two. Another option is to head on over to the website and snack a piece of Rewildology swag. Proceeds benefit conservation, which is what we're all about here. All right, everyone, on to my conversation with Drew. Drew, thank you so much for taking time during your multi-country travels right now to move to Churchill for the polar bears. Dude, I am so stoked to finally have a chance to sit down with you and talk everything, your history, We'll really get into Pebble Mine. Can't wait to learn from you about that. But before we do, I, dude, I've always wanted to ask you, what is your story? How in the world did you become the bear guy? <laughs> well, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a process. I don't think it's anything I ever really set out to do. I uh, I had been going to university out on the East Coast in Washington D.C. and uh, quickly determined. It was not my style, not my speed. And it turns out that Alaska is as far away from Washington, D.C. as you can possibly get. And so <laughs> hopped in a 1988 Jeep Wrangler. This is back in the late 90s and drove from Washington, D.C. up to Anchorage, Alaska, and then ran out of gas in the middle of the Kenai Peninsula in front of a fishing lodge, <laughs> stopped in looking for work. It's Alaska the summer. Everybody's looking for workers. So. And in that process, they sent us out to a bear viewing camp. And that was kind of my first experience with bears and moving around bears. And there was an old homesteader that lived out there. And he'd been living out there since 1967. And he was the kind of the first person that opened my eyes to how you live, how you work around bears. And it's really no big deal that people make a big deal about bears. But really, 
you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. <laughs> and then, I don't know, and then you kind of blink and 20 years go by and suddenly you're talking to Brooke from a hotel room in the Yukon Territory. I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> well, let's explore that a little further. So during, so did, so did you grow up around Washington, D.C.? Is that where you like hail No, from? actually, I grew up in Iowa. And, you know, part of Oh, shit. City, what part? Well, I grew up in Iowa Falls. And okay. And uh, high school in Ames. I think a lot of maybe my subtle interest in bears are I was subliminally predisposed to bears because, you know, growing up in the 80s, in the Midwest, it was all Chicago Bears. It was, you know, the era of uh, William Perry, uh, Richard Dent, Walter Payton, Jim McMahon. I was a huge Bears fan from an early age. And I think maybe once that dynasty fell, I just kind of transferred it over to the actual, you know, brown bear species. And so it was an, e it was an easy transition for me, frankly. <laughs> One that makes a lot of sense, actually. It's like, let's actually support and love the real bears. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it's a matter of being in the North and, and just when people ask to do stuff, you just say yes. You know, there's opportunities to don't, <laughs> I mean, unless it's dangerous, but you know, <laughs> don't say yes to that. But everything else, you know, think it through and weigh the options. But yeah, if you say yes more, you know, good things will happen. Could not agree more with that. That's for sure. <laughs> so then what did you end up studying? Did you have like a like some sort of like wildlife management thing or what did you decide to study to get out of Iowa? Well, so I uh, actually studied recreation. It's a lot of uh, risk management, logistics, things like that, how to put together programs with a focus on business. And then uh, I got most of my, the initial on the ground work with bears, pretty unique skill set to have working for private companies. And then gradually built up enough experience where I got hired on because of this experience with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game where I worked at the McNeil River State Game Sanctuary, which is the, the, the land that protects the largest congregation of brown bears anywhere on earth. And so we talked a lot about it during the, the pebble fight, and which we'll talk more about and get, get everybody updated. But that was just, you know, a day at McNeil River is like a lifetime of watching bears somewhere else. Most bears I saw in the McNeil River in a quarter mile stretch of river was 78 you know, you're, you're, you're out there walking around, you got 78 bears all around you. Uh, there are no fences. Uh, it's just you and a small group of bear viewers and you learn real fast. And it's interesting because you can see all these behaviors stacked on top of one another. So, you know, you get 20, 30, 40, 50, however many bears you have, they're all doing something different. It's all going on right in front of you. And so it really is a crash course. And anybody that's interested in learning more about bears and, and watching them, I, I would suggest putting McNeil River on your bucket list. And it's uh, to go there, it's a, it's a lottery system. They only take 10 people a day. It's managed by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And um, it's just great value. <laughs> you got to pay to play the lottery. Uh, you give them your dates that you're looking for. They put it in a, well, they don't put it in a hat. <laughs> draw it I mean, out, but do they? <laughs> they've, got the, they've got the digital version of the hat that they draw the names out of. And then, uh, and then you can go spend four four days camping out there with the bears. And it is, it is wild. And then from there, I transitioned to, uh, you know, starting with polar bears and um, doing uh, more private bear tours in Alaska. Uh, also, when I was working for Alaska Department of Fish and Game in the winters, you'd always have to come up with other gigs, right? Because you don't want to go into the dens. It's not 
no. start. You can't, you can't even take pictures in there. Maybe an iPhone 12 can do it. Maybe 13, <laughs> the low light settings. They're great for bars, bear dens too, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, I, I would work in the winters in the commercial fisheries genetics lab doing DNA extractions on salmon. And I actually have the record and I, nobody's going to break this record. I extracted DNA from 77,000 salmon. In How the hell did you do that? One at a time. <laughs> one at a time. So how do you take a DNA <laughs> sample? Like what? <laughs> Tweezers? <laughs> Tweezers. Tweezers and scalpels and a lot of chemicals and stuff. It was, it was monotonous, but we had a really great crew in there. It was the middle of a, a massive project that they were doing here uh, in Alaska. We're back in Alaska, I'm in Canada now, called the Western Alaska Salmon Stock Identification Project. And basically what they were looking at was trying to establish baseline genetics for all of the salmon stocks in Western Alaska, which is huge, <laughs> you know, so it, it was a monumental undertaking. And so they had all these technicians in the lab working nonstop, cranking it down. It also became very cost efficient to do the genetics that lab processes or processed at the time. I don't know the current numbers, but they got it down to where it was about a dollar a fish to process those samples because wow. they were just so, so efficient with it. And then it was really important to have that baseline data because, you know, climate change, natural disasters, different things happening. You want to have that baseline data so that you know how things are changing, right? You meet all sorts of fascinating people come. I don't know if you know a lot of geneticists, but they know how to party. They have a good time. Really enjoyed my time in the genetics lab, and I learned a lot. And and it really it gave me a new appreciation for salmon because you know as as someone who's in the bear business, you know you think of them as bear food, or or you know as an Alaskan you think of them as our food, and it really did uh, provide a lot of insight into not just what they mean to me, but to what, what they mean to other populations in the state of Alaska. You know, it may, they mean something different to somebody in Anchorage versus somebody out in the village, you know, somebody on the Yukon River, uh, somebody on the Kuskokwim, somebody way up north. They all have different relationships with salmon. And what kind of was amazing that in that diversity of, of people, it all came back to salmon. Like it was the most important thing in all of Alaska. Sorry, my dogs just came. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> a little Puppies cameo. can join too. Yeah, and so, you know, there's just been a lot of uh, talk about salmon lately because there, there have been some major uh, run failings. Um, most prominent, I would say, would be the Yukon River uh, chum run, which is the most important subsistence fish in Alaska for a lot of different communities. And then you compare that with what's been going on over in Bristol Bay with their just epic salmon runs. You know, they had uh, over 65 million fish come back this last summer. And, you know, for people that don't live around salmon or eat a lot of salmon or fish for a lot of salmon or just salmon's not a part of your everyday life, it's, it's hard to even comprehend what 65 million salmon is. Right. And they're not small fish. We're not talking about heron. We're not talking about these no. small, we're talking about salmon. No, we'll call them five pounds, pretty good size. But where I do most of my bear viewing, we're up at the spawning grounds. So we're at the very far reaches of Bristol Bay. It's this huge geographic area and it's unique because it's the last. 
Runs like that used to exist all the way down to Northern California, and they've gradually been whittled away through habitat loss or overfishing or dams or when salmon disappear, it's not usually just one thing that does them in. It's kind of a death by 10,000 paper cuts scenario. You know, somebody cuts the riparian zone or, you know, there's bycatch out in the saltwater or there's, you know, just different things, habitat degradation all play into it. And then there are fewer fish and then fewer fish. And then one morning you wake up and they're gone. Hmm. This sounds absolutely devastating. And so, well, how much has it decreased by, I mean, from, from totals? No, well, like Bristol Bay, it's setting records. Like that's, you know, unprecedented, the number of fish that are coming back these days. You know, let's hope it keeps it up, but, you know, everything is in flux. Like with the, the failed chum runs they were talking about, you know, there's, there's, again, no one culprit. They do think it's likely in the ocean, whatever's happening. We should talk a little bit about salmon, Pacific salmon's life history. We just start throwing around and assuming. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's discuss that. Like, how exactly does the salmon run even happen? What it, you know, we because we talk about that big event, but they have like what, how like four or five years at sea? Am I wrong? How many years at sea? Well, it's gonna it's gonna vary. It's gonna vary species to species, and then even oh. within a species, there are different age classes of fish that might return. Oh, and so there are five species of Pacific salmon that we have in North America, and. They're all a little different. They all require different gravel sizes for spawning. They all have different run timings and different kind of temperature needs and things like that. And so they're born in the streams. They'll hatch in the streams. And then depending on the species, some of them, pinks and chums, will go straight out to the saltwater. Sockeye, kings, and silvers will all hang out in the freshwater for a period of time before they go out to the saltwater. They'll go through a process called smolting where their body will adapt to, to the saltwater. And then they'll go out. And then this is where they basically act as the conduit between the marine ecosystem and the terrestrial ecosystem. So they go to the saltwater, they gather up nutrients, they gather up energy, nitrogen, and then they return. Mostly they'll return to their natal stream, a stream where they respond to then repeat the process. They spawn and then they die. And so that's what I was talking about earlier when they only get one shot at it, <laughs> they, they spawn once and then they die. And so all of those nutrients, all of that energy that, you know, they're in the North Pacific, they're in the Gulf of Alaska, very rich marine ecosystem. You think of the, the summertime in Alaska, all that photosynthesis going on. So they transport all of that back up into the terrestrial ecosystem to the point where, you know, you can take a sample from any green thing <laughs> on the coast of Alaska, and you're going to be able to trace that nitrogen back to the salmon. And wow. So the bears kind of function as nature's can opener, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing goes to waste. Um, it all gets recycled. It all gets used. It's, it's all feeding something else. Wow. So they're, I mean, that's like a new level of a keystone species. Like would that habitat even exist if the salmon run crashed or there'd be, there'd be some habitat there, but it wouldn't definitely wouldn't look like it does now. Just because it is, it is so important for, for everything around it. Anything that comes in contact with salmon is impacted by them. Uh, like it, it's, it's really because they're, they've been so reduced and they're, they're kind of, in, in a lot of places, they're just even a novelty now. Like you can go down to the, the locks and watch them swim through the fish ladders and things like that. And it's some, but when 
you, you go to places like rural Alaska where it's a lifestyle. Like people depend on that for subsistence, for cultural identity. It's hard for a lot of people to, to comprehend the importance of salmon. Mm. Wow. Yeah, because we think about it, you know, you have your salmon filet at a restaurant maybe when they're in season or, you know, something like that. But to think about something that's that important where not only is it bears, but it's also people too. And I think that sometimes we lose that or we just don't fully understand that there are communities that completely rely on this just as much as the wildlife. When I was just talking to a buddy about this the other day, like watching a salmon run is one of the great migration. It's, I mean, it is one of the most amazing things you're ever going to, ever going to witness. We were, we were talking about it in the context of bears, of course, because so many of my conversations revolve around bears, but even, even when you're watching bears, there are no bears and you're still watching the fish as they're pouring in from the ocean. And it's just going up into the fresh water. It's, 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 it's powerful. It's, symbolic of an intact ecosystem. Um, it's things working as they should. And so any place that has good, strong salmon runs, you know, is, is a healthy ecosystem to support it. Uh, and we're really fortunate that we still have some of these places left. And that's why it's so scary when you think about things like uh, the Pebble Mine, the proposed Pebble Mine that uh, we fought hard for Time has no meaning during a pandemic, but <laughs> we, we were fighting for our lives there against this proposed mine that they wanted to put right at the headwaters of that Bristol Bay sockeye fishery we were just talking about. And if there's one thing that history has showed us, it's that mines and salmon don't mix. They're talking about putting the largest copper mine in the world um, in this sensitive area. And it's a lot of water out there. It, it, it technically would have been a, a sulfide mine. Just the act of digging a hole out in Bristol Bay exposes things to the atmosphere that uh, it produces basically sulfuric acid. And so they were talking about having a big vat of sulfuric acid being held back by an earthen dam right on a fault line, like right on the, the ring of fire. It was just, it was this absurd scary proposal and it came so close to getting pushed through it's still it's not quite resolved like we're still technically the the permits have been denied denied by the army corps of engineers but now we're working towards uh, permanent protections for bristol bay through the environmental protection agency's 404c clean water act veto power basically they could veto this project and so the uh, the wheels have just been set in motion there was a lawsuit that we participated in that is allowing them to pick up left off in the process because they had started this process before and there was a lawsuit that stopped it so now we can pick up hopefully right where we left off about five years ago and get some permanent protections in place for bristol bay and then we can all uh rest a little bit easier at night yes yes thanks so much for that update because i remember seeing that recently and just all of us that have been watching this fight now and you being one of the big advocates against it, very vocal. And so all of us are so grateful for everything that you've done and you're advocating for sure. But, but for those who like, cause this is a very international audience that might not have context of what exactly this is. How exactly did the pebble mine conversation even happen? Because from what I understood in a previous administration, it was like, this is 
we're good. This will never be touched again. But somehow the conversation was open again and bidders were allowed to come in and this project was going to move forward. So could you, could you go into that? How, how did this, how did this even happen? Well, the fight goes back decades actually at this point, you know, when they discovered this deposit, this huge, but relatively low grade ore deposit out in Western Alaska. And we're, we're Alaskans. We're in the extraction business. We we're in the oil business. We, we wouldn't be where we are without mega projects. And so a lot of people were touting this as the next big mega project to fill the state coffers and provide jobs and things like that. And, you know, so it was, it was going, people were pretty gung-ho about it for a little while there until they started to see things like, well, what does this mean for the fishery? You know, because the Bristol Bay fishery generates billions of dollars a year, 14,000 jobs a year. So are you really just trading this unsustainable mining for are you, are you swapping out your fishing jobs, your sustainable fishing jobs and, and your subsistence. And so that really uh, turned a lot of people against Pebble. The majority of Alaskans are opposed to this project for, for basically those, those reasons. And, you know, those that were supporting it say, oh, mega projects are always good, but nobody was really asking, well, why is this good? Like, what is, yeah, it would mean this, this, and this for X amount of time, but we've got this salmon run that if we take care of it, could go on forever and ever and ever. And so, you know, Alaska is a red-leaning state, a very red-leaning state. And, you know, this coalition produced some very interesting bedfellows, <laughs> if you will. And so, you know, I, I went, I sat through so many hours of public testimony and things like that. You'd get, you know, crusty sourdough stand up. <laughs> I've lived in Alaska for X number of years. I'm not opposed to mining, but I'm opposed to this mine. Here's why. I was opposed by, you know, our very powerful senator at the time, uh, Ted Stevens, who since passed away. You know, it was the, the wrong mine in the wrong place. This is his kind of famous quote. And so it's, it's always had kind of this broad coalition of opposition. And I really think that the reason it got so far is just there were a couple of people in the Pebble Project who were very politically connected and had done a lot of time in the system and knew how to work the system. And their, their benefits and their structures were, were not based on getting shovels in the dirt. It was based on how far they could get it along the permit process. And so they could go ask for more money from investors and things like that. They were getting rich just off the process. So... Like it, it was scary that it was almost, I don't know, at times it felt like it was just a game to them when you're, you're dealing with people's livelihoods and identities and, and, and things like that. So it was very, very scary there for a while. And then, um, so let's see, thinking back at the end of the Obama administration, they had started this EPA veto process. And so it was, it was going along. This thing was going to die. Uh, it was going to be permanently vetoed. Well, that administration ended, and then the next administration came in. And uh, Scott Pruitt, I don't know if you remember that name, he got booted out eventually for, for scandalous behavior. Um, he had a meeting with Pebble, and they said, not only is the project back on, but it's fast-tracked. And so they settled the lawsuit saying, okay, no, Pebble can can go ahead. We're not going to, we're not going to stop anything. So that started this war, basically. I'm just a lowly bear viewing guide. I never expected to 
sue the federal government or, or anything like that, but that's the turn, the turn it took. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a lot of public relations. We had COVID going on. We had, you know, they were having all these public meetings for people to come out and testify, but it was during fishing season. They abbreviated the public comment periods. They changed their plan after everybody had already submitted their comments. Like it was just super, super shady. And then uh, it finally kind of came to a head, at least in a public relations standpoint, when we were building this broad-based coalition, we got Donald Trump Jr. and Jane Fonda to both tweet their opposition to Pebble Mine on the same day. No fucking way. I didn't know about that. Freaking Donald Trump Jr.? Donald Trump Jr. and Jane on the same day. Yeah, so it it doesn't get much more broad- uh, broad-based coalition than that. And then through this whole thing, there have been a lot of organizations that have been fighting tooth and tooth and nail. Uh, we've got uh, United Tribes of Bristol Bay, you've got Trout Unlimited, you've got Salmon State, you've got Cook and Lake Keeper, you've got World Wildlife Fund, you've got National Parks Conservation Association. So many different people really just rose up, basically. And it was it was really eye-opening. I mean, because I, I, I'd never done anything like this before. And so I've got this little nonprofit called Friends of McNeil River, and we were concerned about what this would potentially do to bear populations, because these bears that we watch at McNeil River, a lot of them go over the mountains. They'll walk 40 miles over to Bristol Bay to eat those 60 million fish that come up. So we tried to draw connections with you know, the interconnectedness between multiple ecosystems and Cook Inlet and Bristol Bay and how they're it's it's just all intertwined. And then saying that, you know, bears that come into these preserved areas, because that's Katmai National Park, which is, you know, these Bristol Bay fish we're talking about, it's perfect timing because this is Fat Bear Week coming up. Um, like Fat Bear Week is the, the, the biggest week of the year for the bears. Well, you know what those bears are eating to get so fat? Bristol Bay salmon. You know, if Pebble Mine went in, like, what's that going to do to the fat bears? Right. People love fat bears. Every, I mean, honestly, like my Instagram right now, there's so much fat bear, like week prep and just excitement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's wild. It's its own phenomenon. And you look at, you know, the, the direct benefits of the Bristol Bay fan, you know, they, they put numbers on, you know, oh, this many jobs, this many, um, this many dollars. But then there are all these other industries that pop up around it, like the bear viewing industry that relies on those salmon as well. And we're we're not generating the billions of dollars that the fishery is generating, but we still generate about $40 million a year for South Central Alaska. And about 70% of that money stays in South Central Alaska. That's what, you know, pilots are using to pay their mortgage, feed their kids. You know, it's, it's, it's a very kind of homegrown industry, but it's you know, it's still important. It's part of our, our, our diversified tourist economy here in Alaska. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for diving into all of that. And so how much money was this project supposedly going to bring and whose pocket was that going to go into? They wouldn't tell us. You know, normally on a project like this, they'd have to do a neat an economic assessment and uh they wouldn't release that so literally every single thing about this was sketch as fuck yeah 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 it was just a couple of guys know how to work the system and then made us jump through all these hoops like it really was was 
truly horrible. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but it just shows like how you got to be on guard. You know, you, you always have to be vigilant for things like this because there's always shady people going to be trying to do shady things like put a mine in Bristol Bay, things like that. So, but I do have so much hope moving forward here that this, that this veto is going to get, going to get done. Um, we can look at other ways to protect, protect Bristol Bay moving forward so that it is something that can be sustained and celebrated and frankly profited from for generations, you know. People have been using these fish for thousands and thousands of years. Let's keep it for another thousand. Yeah, absolutely. And so if anyone on here is listening and they're like, oh my God, how can this be a thing? How can I show my support? What can they do? Should they get a hold of Friends of McNeil River? Or So what I would recommend right now, and there are going to be strategic times when uh, specific actions are needed. And so there are any number of organizations. You could go to uh, defendbristolbay.com. You could go to United Tribes of Bristol Bay, follow them on social media, sign up for their email newsletters, things like that. And they will let you know the appropriate times for, for the next public comment period that could potentially happen. They're still kind of hashing out what still needs to be done and where they can pick up what they've already done. Are they going to re- need to redo assessments and things like that? But just stay tuned at this point, because there will be a time in the not too distant future where we're going to need to make our voices heard again. And it'll take a little bit from everybody to get the job done. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I would love um, to ask this question, since you are so entrenched in, in this field too, where do you see sustainable tourism in all of this? Well, like I mentioned before, like it, it is part of a, a diversified tourist economy. You got you can't just have one thing. You got to spread it around a little bit just to make it more resilient against things like uh, pandemics. <laughs> uh, you know, so <laughs> even if, you know, even if you miss out on a year of bear viewing, you're still making money from Bristol Bay, still had the fish tree, things like that. Like it, it's, I think an important part, but it's still just a part. You know, you have to you have to take all the stakeholders into consideration. You have to uh, to look at the different ways you can you can figure out how to how to manage a resource like a salmon run sustainably. And it's it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's still a very important tool in conservation. It's not the end all be all, but it gets shit done. <laughs> It's hard to fight dollars. That is one of the reasons why, you know, I shifted my career and I decided to go in conservation, sustainable travel, because it's like it puts a value dollar on alive and thriving ecosystems and wildlife, like exact dollars. And you can't fight money. I mean, look at Bristol Bay. That's the reason why it's coming in. It's because it's a dollar. It was a quick buck that some who knows sketchy person was wanting to make to completely crush an entire industry an entire ecosystem entire natural area to extract something that i'm sure would put a lot of money in their pocket but that's one a one-time paycheck versus the years and years and years and years and years and years of fishery and the tourism and everything else that's dependent on the salmon would bring in well they were then they were so disingenuous about it you know they were saying oh this will fill the state coffers and things like that. Well, the state of Alaska doesn't have a tax structure that captures mining revenue. Like, no, oh. it wouldn't. 
<laughs> it would literally do nothing. <laughs> like it, it'd be some jobs for a few people, like if, if but on a, on a state level, it's it's not bettering the whole of Alaska by putting it in. And that was one of their major talking points. It's like, oh, this is going to be good for Alaska. No, no, it's not. <laughs> so they were just hoping to get people who don't understand like tax laws or anyone else who might not be in Alaska to support them because they're like, this is actually going to help Alaska. Listen, and how many people know tax laws, especially in another state? <laughs> right. Well, and you know, it's, it's all about those keywords. Oh, jobs. Oh, this, oh, that, oh, jobs. And you know, I, I go back to, so one of our, our governors, Jay Hammond, who wrote a fantastic autobiography called The Bushrat Governor. And in that, he's talking about a debate that came up while he was in office about jobs and how we needed jobs and we we're going to do this. And it was going to, it was going to cost this amount of money. And that was, he said, no, stop, stop with you. What is the cost of those jobs? You can't just create jobs for job's sake. You need to look at, at what are the opportunity costs associated with them? Like, like, what's the point of putting in $50 million to create 10 jobs that pay nothing? Like, it just doesn't pencil out. You got to, you got to look at the, the, the benefits. You got to look at the cost. It's all part, it's a, it's a complex decision-making matrix and it's, it's not always cut and dry, but in this case, thankfully it was, this was just a bad idea from the start. Good. At least that that's helpful. And and to bring this back to you, because there's one thing that I really love about this podcast is really showing what it's like as us in this field to go through these things. What was it like for you to do this, to go through this, to sue the government? I mean, this must have been an emotional roller coaster that you experienced. I mean, it really did feel like we were fighting for our lives there for a while, just because it was it was so poorly thought out and just such a shady deal, basically, that you really felt like the rug was getting pulled right out from under your feet and there was nothing you could do about it. You could yell and scream all you want. And there are a lot of passionate people in this. It was, it was scary. It was depressing. It was, I mean, you know, really going from just I, yeah, I mentioned I'd never done anything like this before and, and having to get up to speed on the politics of coalitions and, and things like that and what moving pieces go where to ultimately, ultimately be, well, hopefully we'll be victorious once we get these permanent protections in place, <laughs> then then we'll rest a little bit easier. Um, but it was it was scary and yet uplifting at the same time because you were seeing all this support. Uh, coming from people around the world. And the people that I met in Alaska through this process were amazing. I mean, lifelong friends were formed through this. And uh, a lot of people that I really, truly admire who'd been doing this for for decades at this point, and they just had so much to teach and so much to to offer. And hopefully we'll be able to learn from that and, and win the next one too. That's awesome. And if somebody listening is going through something similar. Let's say that they might be, I mean, international or in the U S and there's, there's something going on that they truly disagree with. What advice would you have for them? Having gone through what you did. Get lawyers. <laughs> Get good lawyers. <laughs> I mean, you can yell and scream all you want, but 
you know, there, there are organizations out there that, that, you know, their, their whole mission is to provide legal support for people who might have a problem like I had, or like this hypothetical listener has find out who they are, seek legal counsel, you know, all the petitions in the world aren't going to stop a mine, but a good lawyer can. Damn, that's good. (laughs) sometimes you got to bring in the big guns if they are then you can (laughs) (laughs) right Right? and so as you as you're looking as as you're looking around for your where to spend your philanthropic dollars seek out like the the one here in alaska that i i'm donating to now is trustees for alaska you know they're they're they took us through this fight so (laughs) So, so, and I don't know what, what organizations are like that in, in your neck of the woods, but I bet they exist and they are incredibly important. Oh, that's great. That's great. So I'm giving I know- a shout out to the lawyers. That's what this is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if it wasn't for you, y'all, we would still be fighting and crying in our beds and this might be actually like breaking ground right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So this was Drew. Thank you so much for teaching all of us about this and this huge issue and everything that's going on. And again, I don't want anyone to miss that you are an amazing wildlife photographer. You are literally the bear guide. Like you are an amazing wildlife guide as well. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you or maybe even come meet you out in the wild to see bears, what is the best way for someone to go about that? If they track me down on Instagram, Drew HH on Instagram is probably the easiest way these days. Facebook got a little too convoluted. Email, I haven't checked that in a while. You can track me down on Instagram. I'll get back to you in a few days. <laughs> Especially now as you're literally moving across North America. <laughs> I don't even know where I am right now. I'm in Beaver Creek. I know that, right? <laughs> Awesome, Drew. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I cannot wait to teach everybody about salmon and how important vetoing this huge project is. Right on. Hey, and thanks so much for having me on. We've been talking about it for a while. So uh, hopefully everybody um, can go out and eat some wild salmon tonight. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Drew. Right on. (laughs) Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>